So, Will. Yes. In this film that we are discussing today, the main character wrote a fictionalized accounting of his college days to some consternation. And I was just wondering, if you had to write a fictionalized account of a moment in your life, which one would you choose? I mean, I've thought about a couple of answers, but I think the one that I need to do, especially since this is a movie podcast, is do one of those, like, making of this movie books. Like, there was a big one that came out a couple years ago about the making of 2001 A Space Odyssey. There are ones about The Shining. You know, anytime a movie becomes iconic enough, somebody will write a book that's, like, the behind the scenes of it. So I would do a book about the creation of my seminal film, The Price is Wrong. (laughs) which I made with my sisters and some friends of mine on the street I grew up on when I was in seventh grade. It is a James Bond parody, despite the fact that I had never seen a James Bond movie. I think I've seen it. The lead character is named Jimmy Stocks, because like Bonds and Stocks. And it involves a conspiracy perpetrated by my younger sister, Mora, to sell barrels of monkeys at an unconscionable markup. I would read this book. I have seen the film. And I would love a follow-up about the creation of Princess Fiona, or whatever that movie was actually called. Oh, that movie's called The Princess Friend. I had no involvement in it. I know. But I would love to read you researching the story of The Princess Friend and writing an epic piece about it. I mean, that movie is also heavily plagiarized from National Treasure. <laughs> yes. I also remember thinking when I heard about this that Fiona would be about, you know, 10, maybe 12. And I think she was, what, in her teens? No, she was, I believe, a college graduate in that film. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, I was thinking about this, and I think I would have to write an account of the time where I went on the most disastrous tour of Inner Mongolia you could imagine when I lived in Beijing that ended with a revolt against the tour company. What? Discovering that the bus drivers were illiterate (laughs) and the leader of the tour attempting to kidnap one of the bus groups and drive them to a desert after we'd all demanded that we go back to Beijing and gotten all of the bus drivers on our side. So what did the, like, leader of the tour want to do? So the leader of the tour wanted to take us to another place to stay that had no running water uh, in the desert, I am sure, and just to look at the desert, I guess. But everything was just so bad on that tour. Just, like so uncomfortable and it was a bunch of foreigners and we all kind of like eventually were just we can't do this anymore we need to shower please take us home to beijing where you can't drink the water from the tap but at least it runs out of it and you were successful we were eventually successful and it was all because we got the bus drivers on our side that is the key. So what, the bus drivers decided they also did not want to go to the desert? Yeah, they also were just like, well, I think it was also because they, we were clearly suffering. And we convinced them that now is the time to abandon ship. And so they were willing and took us back to Beijing against the wishes of the company. That is wild. It was a wild ride. And we managed to get a refund from a company in China, which is in and of itself an accomplishment. Yeah, that feels like a whole, like courtroom drama final section of the book yeah it can add a court even though it was just us bitching enough and threatening court well that's the fictionalized part yeah not that court would have actually helped us because i don't think that a court in china would be too sympathetic to foreigners (laughs) especially ones who just came across as whiny yeah uh what a time every so often i just remember some of the disastrous moments that happened when i lived in china and i'm like i i did that also i remember going outside And forget that life existed before lockdowns. It's weird. 
I watched a new reality TV show this morning, of course, called The Great Pottery Throwdown, which is what? a spinoff of The Great British Bake Off, but instead of cooking, it's pottery. So they just, like, make stuff? Yeah, it's very soothing. They have challenges. This week was making a clock out of ceramics, and at one point they all hugged goodbye to the person eliminated, and I was just like, remember when you could hug? And remember when there were group hugs and you weren't just worried about disease? Wow. Great show, though. It's been very weird watching, like, some media that comes back try to grapple with coronavirus. Like, I think the move, for the most part, is just ignore it. Because once you engage with it, you have to take it seriously or else, like, you're dumb. Like, Superstore, in its new season, did an episode entirely about the pandemic and then has continued involving, like, mask wearing and disinfectant and stuff like that. Except for when they're not on the sales floor. Like, when they're... Like, in the employee areas, they all just take off their masks. And I'm like, what are you doing? It's so stressful. I had to stop watching. Because watching people take off their masks is harder than just watching people not wear masks on TV. Right, because then I can just assume that it's, like, set in 2019. Yeah, you can just pretend. Live in a world um, of Speaking of, it will have come out by now. But have you seen the trailer for Lockdown? No, I have not. Like I said, it'll be out by now on HBO Max, I think. But it's a new Doug Lyman movie starring Anne Hathaway and Chiwetel Ejiofor as, like, a fancy London couple who pull a heist during the pandemic. That actually sounds pretty fun. And it was shot in, like, July. They shot it in Harrods because the store was just closed in the pandemic. But there was this variety piece that came out just a couple days ago as we're recording. And the whole production sounds bananas. Because they had basically no money, but also, like, nobody cared what they did. Because they were like, yes, please, just, like, make a movie and employ people. So they were shooting, like, 15 pages a day. The actors had each other's lines taped to their chests because they didn't have time to learn them. Like, half the people in the movie are just neighbors in the neighborhood where they shot it. That sounds wild. Uh, I cannot wait to see it. But I, you know, it's Doug Lyman, so who knows if it'll be good or not. It could be. It could be. But maybe not. But hopefully, this high-stakes shooting environment of filming a movie during a pandemic will help prepare him for the high stakes of shooting a movie in space. What's he shooting in space? The Tom Cruise space movie! I thought it was the next Mission Impossible that was going to space. No! The Mission Impossible movies are staying Earthbound. Tom Cruise is doing a different action movie set in space. And of course, not just set in space, but filmed in space. Why is that worse to me than Mission Impossible going to space? Because Mission Impossible movies are good, and so you trust that they'll figure it out. Yeah, I think that is accurate. And I feel like... Whereas like with Doug Lyman, sometimes it's Edge of Tomorrow, and sometimes it's a piece of crap. I could easily accept Mission Impossible team needing to go to space, too. Because there's so many bombs in space. Right. Wow. What a world Like, the syndicate's on the moon. We're done. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't think they can reach the moon to film. Imagine if the next trip to the moon was a film crew. Would not surprise me. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, should we start talking about today's movie? All right. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast committed to examining one of the least important issues facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are any of these people actually dateable or even likable, even if they're all hot? They are all (laughs) hot in this movie. Yeah, everyone is so hot in this movie. I was watching it with my girlfriend, and she's like, why is everyone attractive? And I'm like, I don't know, it's a movie. (laughs) It's great. But it's somehow more noticeable in this one. Like, I don't... It really is. Yeah. All right, anyway. (laughs) It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. Uh, We will dig in and see what's there. 
And this week, we're taking a look at the debut of writer-director Malcolm D. Lee in 1999's The Best Man. I did not realize until after I'd watched it that he also directed Girls Trip, which was a great movie. Yeah. I think that's the only one of his movies that I've seen besides this, though. Okay, I definitely saw Night School in theaters, which is not amazing, but there are some solid jokes in it. That was a MoviePass era film, right? Uh, I think so. The last good thing that has ever happened to me. The high days of MoviePass were just glorious. That was, honestly, MoviePass folding was just the start of a downhill slope that has led us straight to this moment. But there was that glorious window, the summer that it was falling apart, where like every couple of days you would get a panicked email from a billionaire explaining that MoviePass was definitely going to be fine. (laughs) Oh, what a time. Even the collapse of MoviePass was enjoyable. Yeah. Then I got and I wasn't AMC. even like really upset because I assumed it was going to happen because it was an obviously terrible <laughs> <Yeah>. business model. <laughs> and that's why I saw at least six movies a week one time. So good. Anyway, um, speaking of uh, <laughs> movie pass movies, Malcolm D. Lee's next two movies are Space Jam A New Legacy starring LeBron James, which should be coming out this year, and he's attached to direct the Hot Wheels movie. <sighs> why are they? It's just race car. Like, just make another Need for Speed movie. Because was it, no, that but, was based off the video game, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Is there a Need for Speed movie? Am I just thinking of the Fast and the Furious? There is a Need for Speed movie. Why don't you just, like, you don't need IP to make a car movie. Just call the movie but, Our Cars Go Fast, Vroom Vroom, and people will watch it. But that doesn't automatically sell car toys. And it's like the toy brands trying to get in on movie making. That's why Margot Robbie is working on the Barbie movie. Ugh. I mean, based off of Barbie's recent social media work, I'm kind of fine with that because all of it has been- I'm intrigued by that one, actually. All of her social media posts have been about serious issues addressed in a way for children to understand. Well, most of them were written by that Donald Glover character from SNL, right? (laughs) Where Barbie may or may not have seen someone get murdered. (laughs) Oh my god. Back to the best man. What did you think of this movie? It is really fun. It was very fun. I liked it a lot. Honestly, the cast was distractingly attractive at times. But Okay, but they're all really good in the they movie, are too. Very Even good. the ones who are playing, like, kind of annoying characters. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie where I didn't hate when Shelby was on screen, which is honestly the Frankly, an achievement. Yeah. Yeah. For such a terrible character, the actress managed to play it in a way where she was engaging on screen. Yeah, it's Melissa D'Souza, and it is a, a pretty thankless role that she makes fun. And I thought that... Regina Hall really shined in a movie where she had like three minutes and it was her first movie. Another character who should make basically no impression. Seriously. And she walks out and you're just like, oh, I see it. I understand why you are what you are. And of course, we talked about her a little bit last year when we talked about Love and Basketball because she's in that the next year, along with Sana Lathan, who's another person who does a lot with very little in this movie. I mean, this movie could easily have focused on the women more, and I would have enjoyed it more, but it is also called The Best Man and About a <laughs> was Wedding about Party, to say. <laughs> and that's, that is coming down to my personal tastes, so I don't actually fault the movie for that. But yeah, so like in our main cast, we've got, as we said, Melissa D'Souza, Sana Lathan, Regina Hall. We've also got Morris Chestnut as Lance, the football player, Harold Perrineau as Merch, who had just recently been Mercutio in Romeo plus Juliet. We have Nia Long as, or like the main female character, Jordan, 
who the most interesting thing I learned about Nia Long is that she played Will's girlfriend on 15 episodes of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and they had originally wanted to cast Jada Pinkett, but decided she was too short. When has that ever stopped Hollywood before? I know. Remember Gaslight, where the guy stood on a box in all the scenes? (laughs) Yeah. It is a long tradition of actors being shorter in person than they are on screen. We were just discussing the career of Thomas Cruise. (laughs) It sounds so weird when you say Thomas Cruise. Doesn't it? And then we've got Terrence Howard and Tay Diggs. Tay Diggs has only gotten more attractive with age, though. Yeah, I mean, he's hot in this movie. He's hot now. I mean, he was in Chicago three years later, and something changed along the way where I feel like he is so much more attractive in Chicago. Maybe it's the glasses. It's the glasses. There's a lot of unfortunate 1999 fashion in this movie. Oh, it's it can be rough at times. We're definitely going to need a wedding dress watch in this episode. Yeah, I started rewatching Psych, and that was like 2006. And I look back, and I feel like the 90s and 2000s kind of blur together. But the reason we think they blur together is they are all bad. But they're just bad in such different ways. Right, they're quite different in their badness fashion-wise. Yeah, there's a big difference between late 90s and early 2000s fashion faux pas. Early 2000s, it's all about how big can your clothes get. Late 90s, it's all about how small can your clothes get. But in weird ways. (laughs) In weird ways. Like, Sana Lathan's dress at the wedding, which is not a dress, it's like... A, like, barely cut-off top and then, like, a weird long skirt. It was so funny because she gets off the plane. It was like, I have to change for the wedding. And then she changes and she looks so much more casual and worse. Well, when she gets off the plane, she's wearing that magnificent coat. Yeah, it's a With, like, the gold fringe all over the place. I love watching old movies and seeing the fashion. It can be distracting at times just for me because I get so caught up in it. But... This movie's still shown through even the clothes that everyone was wearing. (laughs) (laughs) And isn't that the highest compliment? You liked it in spite of the fashion. Yeah. For 1999, that's saying quite a bit. The other Nia Long thing we need to talk about is something that you are definitely not aware of, which is her most recent film appearance. Okay, I'm so excited. Last November, she was in the movie Life in a Year, which is a Jaden Smith, Cara Delevingne teen cancer romance movie. How is that a genre now? That's what I wanted to talk about. How is, like, chronically ill teens falling in love a consistent genre? I mean, I know the reason, and it's because of The Fault in Our Stars being successful. Right, but we got we got this life in a year. Um, the Space Between Us, which is the cystic fibrosis one about the kids in the hospital. No, no, wait, sorry, that one's five feet apart. The Space Between Us is the girl, like, from Mars who can't come to Earth. <laughs> To be with her internet boyfriend. And then there's the one where the girl's allergic to sunlight and can't leave her house in the day. Because, I mean, the thing is, the fault... All of these movies came out in the last five years. Yeah, The Fault in Our Stars has just, like, children with terminal cancer. Then the diseases start getting a bit more far-fetched. Because with The Fault in Our Stars, it's like, it doesn't impact their day-to-day life too much, where it can be mostly about teens falling in love. But getting around the fact that a girl can't go outside in the daytime is very different. Is she a vampire? (laughs) Which is, I mean, that is... Is she Tay Diggs, King of the Vampires? Ah, we should watch Dylan Dog Dead of Night. Add it to the list right now. <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> that movie was one of the earliest movies I went to see in theaters just to heckle. 
We discussed it on this podcast years ago. I don't remember on what episode. Wow. Tate Diggs has such a varied career. Yeah, I mean, even the movies that we've covered where we have this and Chicago and Set It Up. Oh, I think he's best maybe in Set It Up. Yeah, that movie rocks. Yeah, but he's also so good in Chicago for such a small role. Wow. What an actor. And then this movie, he fluctuated between being so annoying and so charming. Which I think is really great. It's good. It's intentional, too. It's not like it's not like he's doing a bad performance in this way. The character is also fluctuating between super annoying and charming. Yeah, it is exactly the kind of person who would just be totally insufferable. But they've been friends with him for long enough that they're like, we get it. But we still like something about him. Almost everyone in this group has insufferable qualities. That is true. There's no angel in this group of friends. Yeah, probably the closest is, like, Merch. Yeah, the closest is Merch, but Merch has, like, devastatingly low self-esteem in relationships to the point where it is annoying to other people. Which I enjoy. I like when a group of friends actually all has flaws. Well, because also that gives them, like, interesting ways to engage with one another. And it means that different combinations of people in the group are interesting in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think every combination in this group has moments on screen and the movie does some cool stuff with what happens if we shift the pairings right in a way that like like a a sitcom would often do of like okay for this episode these two characters haven't really spent time together let's put them together and see what happens yeah like when they did one ross and phoebe episode i think that was a pairing where they like had 10 lines to each other on screen the whole show not that low but it's really crazy how little those two would interact i have seen like four episodes of friends ever i have not seen it in a very long time because I watched the like pilot again recently and the pilot's just chock full of gay jokes and trans jokes and I was like, I'm out. (laughs) But this movie also was annoyingly misogynistic at times though. I do want to address that. Yes. I think the movie thought it was calling it out more than it was. Yeah, I do think that the movie's heart is more in the right place than it actually winds up being. Because, I mean, the movie is not painting Lance as a good guy for being a serial cheater and then freaking out when he finds out that Mia cheated on him once. And a long time ago, and it's implied he has continued up until like a week ago. Right. Well, that's because he says marriage is a cure to promiscuity. So it won't be an issue once he gets married. It's just such bullshit. Like, it's so, I can't believe he would think that at all. He's just very confident. Yeah. But I think Jordan's a little too... Career-driven women need to back off of their careers for their man. I didn't mind it as much because I thought it was pretty evenly matched with Harper. Where, like, Harper similarly was, like, so focused on, like, his career trajectory and stuff like that that he also could not commit to his relationship. Like, I think it would have bothered me more if it were just her. As opposed to, like, it is these two people who are very similar in a way that has made it hard for them to establish a relationship. Yeah, that's actually, that's a good point. I love when Merch was, like, calling out Lance or Quentin. I can't remember which one when they were like, if you're with Jordan, she might make more money than you someday. And Merch was like, who gives a shit? And I was like, yes, <laughs> go Merch. Well, that's because Merch almost certainly makes, like, Merch doesn't care. Like, he wants to just, like, work with the kids. Yeah. What a guy. I loved Merch. Yeah. He's great. Harold Perrineau. A lot of fun in this. Mm-hmm. The one we have not really dug into is Terrence Howard. Yeah. it's <sighs> The problem is it's kind of hard to watch Terrence Howard on screen for me. Because he's such a bad guy. Yes. He is a bad man. You know, multiple domestic violence charges. He was once removed from a plane for assaulting a flight attendant. That is rough. He is really good in this movie. He is. 
Quentin is a character that would be very easy to make awful. And he just kind of seizes control of, like, whatever scene he's in through charisma. And he also is a character that has flaws, as they all do, but he is one that genuinely cares about the group through all of his own nonsense, where he spends so much time helping Merch learn to stand up for himself, and it comes off as kind of anti-woman at times, but for the most part, it is very much... He is trying to help his friend learn how to stand up to a woman that is verging on emotionally abusing him. And I think that is an interesting type of character. That there is a caring for his friends here that even within the movie, it's easy to forget that it's there, but it it keeps emerging. Right. Because that, you know, the character of the kind of sleazy, sleeping with everyone character, often, like I'm thinking of Barney in How I Met Your Mother, isn't given enough room to demonstrate why he's kept around especially in a movie where you have less time than on a long-running tv show but this movie kind of shows you why quentin is still in the group while we're on the terrence howard subject i just need to talk about one other thing um last time we talked about him was like three or four years ago when we talked about iron man but we did not discuss the fact that in a 2015 rolling stone interview terrence howard claimed he was developing a new system of logic called teriology that would prove that one times one equals two Mark has put his head in his hands. (laughs) I fully broke it. What? Um, Here's the quote. How can it equal one? If one times one equals one, that means that two is of no value because one times itself has no effect. One times one equals two because the square root of four is two. So what's the square root of two? Should be one. But we're told it's two and that cannot be. The square root of two, isn't that an imaginary number? I'm pretty sure it's two. That's what Terrence Howard said. Also, I, like, did his first grade teacher, when teaching them math, not do the, like, times equals number of groups? So you put on the table, you have one block and then another block. And when you add them together, that equals two. But if it's just one group of one block, that is one. You know, Mark, the elementary school teachers that I know would love to hear you talking about the power of manipulatives in your learning. (laughs) But Terrence Howard, two years after that interview, did publish his proof on how one times one equals two. I'll be happy to share it with you. I'll post it on our social media. And there's some inaccurate mathematical proof work in there. And there's also a lot of philosophy about how the lie that one times one equals one helped to establish white European power over other parts of the world. I am baffled. I am confused. And I'm unhappy. By the end of the proof, he basically goes on to invent addition, where he's like, and see, 1 times 15 equals 16. 1 times 17 equals 18. I, I, I just... There is an element of philosophy in mathematics, or there can be. Absolutely. But multiplication... Division, addition, subtraction are very grounded in physical concepts that, I mean, apparently the manipulatives worked because I still remember moving blocks around on a table. Yeah. When I was in first grade, we had like little differently colored bears. It's so like, it's complicated as a kid to learn this stuff, obviously, but it makes so, it's so logical. It makes so much sense at the end of the day. Well, I don't know. I'm going to send you this proof of teriology, and if you need to come back in an, a future episode and say you were wrong, I will be 
understanding. Yeah, maybe next episode when we're discussing Shaft, I'll have to jump back to Terryology. <laughs> well, speaking of math, uh, the best man <laughs> opened on October 22nd, 1999 Oof. in first place. Oof. Okay, go on. Ahead of, here's some 1999 movies for you. Double Jeopardy. Fight Club, Martin Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead, in which Nicolas Cage plays a night shift ambulance driver who keeps seeing dead people, The Story of Us, and American Beauty. It ultimately grossed $34 million against a $9 million budget. Wow. I have seen approximately zero of those movies, except for maybe half of Fight Club on cable. I have also seen none of those movies, but Bringing Out the Dead is one that I know about and it fascinates me. It sounds very interesting. That's the thing. Scorsese has this reputation as like, oh, he's just making crime movies. And he does that. But he's got some weird stuff in his filmography. Yeah. I am also a Nick Cage apologist. I think he is a good actor that can be misused. I agree with you on that. Who also (laughs) suffered some monetary trouble that led him down some questionable paths. Look, when you love buying dinosaur bones, at some point you run out of money. (laughs) Nicholas Cage is just a guy who wanted to own some dinosaurs, and unfortunately, he had to make two Ghost Rider movies to make that happen. It's also so funny because he comes from such wealth. Yeah, he's a Coppola. Yeah, it's not like he is a self-made man. He comes from a family that has had a lot of money, and the fact that he struggled so much I find very interesting. Um, But yeah, the movie's a pretty decent-sized hit. Terrence Howard is the big breakout from it. He gets nominated for Best Supporting Male at the Indie Spirit Award. The Chicago Critics Association nominated him for Most Promising Actor. The movie's all over the NAACP Image Awards of that year. It won Best Motion Picture. Nia Long won Best Actress, and Terrence Howard won Best Supporting Actor. And basically, everyone else in the cast was nominated for an acting award. I mean, I assume Regina Hall popped enough that she got into love and basketball so she wasn't Um, ignored and and she's in a small role in that one like she's the older sister yeah what was the moment where she truly broke into like the public eye i mean she's been around a lot of stuff you know she was on ally mcbeal for a while oh i forgot about that a law and order obviously like her most high profile thing in terms of like formal recognition was support the girls but that's not till 2018 oh i'm thinking of scary movie because she was Usually one of the most popular parts of all the scary movies. Yeah, she's in, it looks like, the first four of them. And then the fifth one is directed by Malcolm D. Lee, who directed this movie. I feel like the first one was actually pretty good, if I remember correctly. I've seen none of them. I feel like I've seen maybe two. One of them has Anna Faris in it. Oh, apparently a lot of them have Anna Faris in them. (laughs) She's been all of them except... The fifth one also. Should we do a scary movie? Uh, I think maybe we should do scary movie or whichever one is considered the best. All right, we'll put that on the list. Wow. We're doing a, a lot of good work here. A lot of housekeeping here. Yeah. This is our first time recording in the new year, so we're just thinking about what's coming up. Yeah. Welcome to 2021, everybody. Hey, you've been in it for a month. All right. So should we start talking about the romances of this movie? I feel like we will cover all of the... Basically everything that happened, yeah. yeah. So, Will, every week we break down the plot point, in case you didn't know, the romantic plot lines of the movie into five points. So, will you guide us through the five points of the romances of the film The Best Man? Yeah, I think the only way to talk about all the romance of this movie is to take our points where each one focuses on a different romance. So, we'll be going through this movie romance by romance as everybody gets a chance to be talked about. So, which is our first pairing? Our first pairing is the first one we see, and that's the relationship between Harper, played by Tay Diggs, and Robin, played by Sana Lathan. 
Great speech. I was, um, I was moved. You know, I meant every word. Every word I said about preserving what we have. And I don't think that this is the right time. I just want to start by saying, who has the time and energy to fill a bathtub with that many flower petals? Oh my goodness. There is this like scene that is the two of them in a bathtub. She's behind him. And you're right. Like it is full. It looks like you're gutter after a hurricane. They're like using the flower petals to like rub each other down. She's like stroking him lovingly across his chest with one flower petal. It's very weird. It was strange. Mark, you should try this and report back if it's like extra hot. Okay, I will find out because it'll take some time because we don't have a tub and we don't leave our house. Well, the next time you like take your dog on a walk, just like start grabbing flower petals. <laughs> and th- just chuck them in the shower where they'll circle the drain. Great. <laughs> yeah, that should work. <laughs> so Harper and Robin live in Chicago. Harper is a novelist. Well, aspiring. His first novel is coming out. Yeah, but he's going to be on Oprah to talk about it. Clearly, there's a lot of buzz for it. And not just on Oprah, but it's like the Oprah's book club selection. Like, he's, at that point, guaranteed to sell a lot of copies. Right. And then Robin is a caterer who makes some very good sounding food. When he gets out of a cab and walks up to the door at the beginning of the movie, she shoves a spoon in his mouth and says it's cranberry orange mango chutney. And it's like on shrimp or something, and it looked very tasty. But they have troubles... Robin wants more commitment from Harper. Harper is unwilling to give it. Well, she says while they're in the bathtub and she's rubbing him with flower petals, she's like, yeah, I could see myself doing this forever. And he practically does a spit take. (laughs) He like jumps out of the bath. His eyes bug out of his head like a Looney Tune. And he's like, what? Yeah. She asks him if he loves her. And he's like, yes, but it's not that simple. It's so bad. It's really bad. And she's clearly insecure because she's read his book and the love interest is... Like an idealized soulmate who is nothing like her. And he keeps saying over and over again, like, oh, no, it's like a made up person. Like, that isn't a real person. It's all fiction, but it's not fiction. It's not fiction. We soon learn, basically by immediately after he arrives in New York and is talking with Merch, that it is based off of a real person. And Robin does have reason to be suspicious. Very much so. But Robin doesn't come to New York at first. She's going to stay in Chicago and just come in the day of the wedding, which is Sunday. And so is she going to like fly in, go to the wedding and then fly back to Chicago? I assume she'll probably take the next day off. It's rude to have a wedding on a Sunday. Yes. I also was confused just because Lance is an NFL player and they've said it's in season. They like kind of imply he has a game that weekend. So is it like a Monday night game? Why is he getting married on game day? He... Is just so in love with Mia. I can't believe he got married during the season. That's insane. The NFL season's not that long. It's like three months. I understand why Robin wouldn't come early because he's going to be so busy being best man. We should say that he is the best man in the title. Yes, he is. He is the titular role. But it is also kind of questionable. I mean, if she's a caterer, she might not need to go to work right away on a Monday. True. Not a lot of catering on Mondays. But it does feel weird that she's not coming, and she seems to feel weird about leaving him at the airport. Because of, she's worried that whoever the girl in the book is based on will be there. Yeah. Which I feel like- And she has reason to be worried about that. I feel like it might be helpful to intertwine the first two, because they both involve Harper, and talk about his relationship to Jordan, because it'll help make the 
conclusion of his relationship to Robin clearer. Okay. So yeah, point two is the relationship between Harper and Jordan, played by Nia Long. You wrote the book. You aired your dirty laundry. No matter how hard you tried to disguise it, it was you. You got me all fired up saying that my life was empty and that we could have been great together. That was you, okay? Not me. You. Okay. Who he meets pretty quickly on returning to New York. She's a big, high-power TV person. I think she's a producer. Because someone's got to work in media. It's a rom-com, man. And we pretty quickly are told that everyone suspects Jordan is the love interest in this book. And everyone keeps saying over and over again that the main character is very clearly a thinly veiled version of Harper. Right. Because he didn't realize that they had one, but they have an advanced copy that has been passed around in their group. Right. Jordan got one as a member of the media. Like, hey, like his agent or the publisher or something was probably like, hey, you should cover this book. And then she recognized it as Harper's book and passed it around among their friends. Right. So they talk. It's kind of awkward at first. We find out through Harper's conversations with Merch, I think, that they almost slept together once in college. I like the use of flashbacks in this movie because we have all of them over the course of this wedding weekend, but every once in a while, and pretty sparingly, it'll flash back to their time in college just to give a sense of some of the context of what's going on. And so we really have these, in a way, three narratives, the weekend, their college years, and the barely fictionalized version of it that is brought up in the novel, which comes up quite a bit. Right. So they are talking Harper kind of admits that he does still have some feelings for Jordan. Yeah, as you said, they almost had sex in college, which they should have known was going to happen as soon as, to stay awake, he turned on Stevie Wonder. Like, yes, the lip sync is very fun, but that's just like asking to bang. Yeah, I mean, that is probably what was in his mind at the time, too. But they weren't able to do it because the tape got stuck, and so it broke the mood. Yeah, they kind of had that snap out of it moment. Um, Jordan, by the way, is like clearly still hung up on him. Yeah, very early on, it's established that she has unresolved feelings for him. And so they have kind of a weird series of interactions over the course of the weekend where they're clearly flirting, but there is the specter of Robin hanging over it all. Like, what is this weekend versus that relationship that he has been unwilling to properly commit to? You know, there are points where he calls Robin on the phone and he still won't say I love you to her. And it's also clear that Jordan's not willing to sacrifice any of her career trajectory to make room for him in her life either. Right. So like we said earlier, they're both in this position where their mindset is like, I want to focus on me. I want to get to the place that I want to be at. This is also at the poker game where it's brought up about how she'll probably make more money than him in the long run. And all of his friends rag him about this. At one point, they called Jordan the best girlfriend he never had. Like, this is clearly a thing that is discussed. And it's probably discussed more given this book. Right. And Quentin is the one, I think, that says, like, you've never been able to commit because everyone is compared to Jordan. Right. So, honestly, you spend a lot of the movie being like, you know, to what extent is this a my best friend's wedding situation? Not going for the groom, but where there is the tension between can a pre-existing relationship survive, like, wedding interloper kind of stuff. Right. And it builds up to the climax of Jordan asking Harper to sleep with her. Just, like, once. She poses it as not a relationship, but she's basically like, we need to sleep together to resolve these emotions. She's like, we had an opportunity once, didn't take it. The opportunity's presented itself again. I want to take it. We'll bang. And then whatever happens after that happens after that. Right. But he shows up after having been beat up by Lance, which we will dig into more. But essentially, Harper slept with Mia when Mia found out that Lance was cheating on her. 
a long time ago in college still. Jordan, by the way, answers the door when Harper shows up wearing like a robe and this like purple lace leotard. It's it's one of the stronger looks in the movie. It is. And then they get into a fight. Yeah, Harper's angry because if she hadn't shared the advanced copy of his book around, then Lance wouldn't have read it and found out before the wedding happened. Right. And then they get to a fight and it's, Jordan, I didn't write it down, but it's just yelling like, I'm angry, I'm dressed up, I hate you, and I'm horny, so get out. Uh, so he leaves, and then the next time they talk, they talk about Robin more, because Robin is shown up. Right, it's the day of the wedding, yeah. and when Robin arrives at the airport, Harper goes to pick her up, and he then tells her everything that's happened over the course of the weekend, because he's feeling like a mess, in part probably because he was beat up the night before. Right. So Robin's like, bye, I'm gonna get back on a plane, but he convinces her that he needs her help to save the wedding. And she basically agrees, just like, I want to see this woman. Right. But, you know, she does help him save the wedding, Harper talks to Jordan about it, Jordan's like, she's the one for you. And this brings us back to the, that's like the end of their relationship. And this brings us back to the end of point one, where Harper and Robin dance together. Robin's like, we need to talk about this more. I'm not ready to commit after you almost cheated on me. And Harper's response is. Yeah, after like a very weird, like this is the same day that like that morning he explained all this stuff to her with his face beat up. And she's like, wow, we're done here. Yeah. And then the movie ends with Harper getting on one knee and proposing to Robin. At the wedding at the reception. the wedding reception. And she says yes. So, like, bad form, for starters. Don't propose to somebody at someone else's wedding. But also, no way should Robin be on board with that there. Also because, like, frankly, a lot of the personal growth Harper goes through on that day is not with Robin. So she wasn't there for it. Yeah. It's bonkers. Like, she is still uncomfortable with the Harper thing. Up to that point, when he's dancing with Jordan, she's, like, looking over, like, what the heck is going on here? Yeah, it's insane. Um, wow. It is just bananas. But this, I guess, that's points one and two, um, so I guess let's dive into point three. Okay, um, so point number three is the romance between Lance, played by Morris Chestnut, and Mia, who is played by Monica Calhoun. All you want to hear is that you're, you're... You're an amazing running back, and that your wife-to-be is perfect, when the truth is, you could actually use some work on your lateral moves and your, your short yardage, and, and a long, long, long time ago, Mia slept with your best man. And so they've been dating since college. Lance got Harper to set them up. Because Harper and Mia, I think, both worked at the newspaper? Yeah, I think they worked at the college newspaper... And Harper was a little hesitant at first because he was like, if you screw this up, Mia's my best employee at the newspaper. Yeah. But Mia knows a lot about sports and Lance is a running back, I believe. Yeah. So she charms him. Harper eventually sets them up and then they date. For years. years. And now they are getting married and they live in a house that looks like it is on the cloning planet of Camino. (laughs) It's wild. It's just wild. White yeah. <laughs> and round. Um, but Lance, this whole time that they've been together, starting like the first week, has been cheating on her every time he goes away for football games. Yeah. And it's like an open secret. All of the guys talk about yeah. it. Yeah. And he feels no shame about it, which is strange because Lance is super religious. Right. But I guess to him, it doesn't matter unless he's married. And he says it won't be an issue when he's married because, of course, marriage is a cure to promiscuity. Yeah. It's wild. But the first time Mia found out about 
him cheating on her, she decides to get revenge by sleeping with his best friend, Harper. And we get some sense of all this from narration from the novel. And so it's hard to get a sense of, like, what's real and what's fictionalized. But in the novel, they don't have sex. But the main character, the word used is cuddles with her. Because since he set them up, he feels responsible for the fact that this relationship has now upset her. Right. So Lance finds this out via the book and then immediately goes and punches Harper, who is seems to be about to drunk drive. I was hoping he would take a cab. Yeah. So... Lance goes and punches Harper in the face and threatens to kill him. It's also worth noting that Quentin, the Terrence Howard character, has been seeding references to this throughout the movie. Like, it's the kind of thing that, talking about the ways the movie succeeds, I think the movie really effectively leads viewers to the understanding that this sort of stuff took place without saying it outright until every character knows. Right. So it's all done through illusion. When they're at the poker game and Lance is talking about how, like, he's slept around all this time but is going to stop. Quentin is bringing up like, oh, you know, what if she did? You really don't think that's possible? And he keeps bringing it up in part because he likes to stir the pot. But also, he's pointing out to Harper, like, Harper, you love to judge everybody, but you have done bad things too. It's just that people haven't figured it out. Right. We don't talk about your bad things. And I thought it was quite bold for Lance to immediately jump to dangling Harper off of a balcony yeah holy cow and like multiple times threatens to murder him which he could do because he's you know huge Huge. but then quentin manages to talk him down enough to let harper go but lance calls off the wedding right it's so it's such bullshit like it's such bullshit i hate it. yeah it's an absurd double standard yeah also because again as we said like lance has continued sleeping around up to like a week ago and this is as far as we know one instance with mia Many years ago. After she found out about him cheating on her and forgave him. Right. Eventually. Oh, I hated it. But the next day, Lance shows up. Everyone's still ready for the wedding. No one knows outside of the, like, few groomsmen, including Mia. Right. So, like, Mia just shows up for her wedding. And then he storms down the aisle and is trying, like, the friends are trying to tackle him before he can get to his parents to call off the wedding. This is an example where this movie is better off because cell phones don't exist. It, yes. It works so much better because there was no way for him to contact everyone. Uh, speaking of that, though, obviously, like, I think just Quentin has a cell phone and there's a lot of business with Merch and Shelby about whether Merch should be using Quentin's cell phone to check in all the time. But there's a sequence in a bathroom where Harper and Lance are talking and Harper's about to confess to Lance that he slept with Mia. And there are, like, four payphones in that bathroom. And I remember payphones being next to bathrooms, but were they in bathrooms that often? I would not want to discuss my business in the same room people are doing business. Right. Like, I don't need to, like, hear somebody, like, moan out a big poop (laughs) as I'm trying to call somebody. (laughs) It's a lot. But yeah, so eventually the way Harper convinces Lance to go through with the wedding is by offering to pray with him for the first time. Which does then, after some convincing, work. Yeah. So, Mia is probably the character we know the least about. Yeah. So this whole time, Robin is working to convince Mia that everything's fine. Should we talk about Mia's wedding dress? I was prepared for it to be worse than I thought it was. It's not good. No. I think that, like, the main dress part of it is pretty solid. Yes. But it's like, there is this, like, sort of, like, strapless dress that she's wearing that's, like, kind of like a sheath. 
that doesn't look bad. But she's got this weird, like, it looks like like a sheer white body stocking. Yeah, it's like a tool unitard or open, like, yeah, body stocking is a good way to put it. That is fully long sleeve and, like, up to the neck. It's very weird. It's very strange. I mean, it's by no means a coming to America style wedding dress (laughs) but you know what that one had flair (laughs) yeah at least it had flair but lance is crying when he is walking down the aisle he's forgiven her they get married and then their reception gets stolen by harper proposing (laughs) to robin after harper gives a nice speech that convinces lance to forgive him a weird speech it's weird don't give a speech at a wedding reception that's all about yourself see also julia roberts in my best friend's wedding. yeah it's very uncomfortable when that happens but lance seeps into it i guess yeah and then lance and me are married and i guess live happily ever after i guess we could find out in the sequel yeah point four all right so point four we've got merch played by harold perino and shelby and i guess also candy yeah we'll throw candy who is regina hall in here too i guess Do you love me? Oh, yeah, Danny. Candy loves you. So, at the start of the movie, Merch has been dating Shelby, it seems like, for a while. Enough that all of his friends know her, or know of her. I think they definitely know her. They have a pretty clear sense of her, like, physical and verbal tactics and tics in a way that suggests they've spent a lot of time together. Yeah, I think they must have been together for years, and they all hate her. Yes. He, like, works with disadvantaged kids, but she wants him to get what she calls a real job because she's a snob, like, working at a law firm or something. Right. And she is awful. (laughs) Yeah, she's no good. She's really manipulative. As you said, borderline emotionally abusive. Uh, She does not like Merch having fun. Like, even with her, she doesn't seem to like it when Merch has fun. She's focused on serious business money. Yeah. And the worst moment is when she's like, you're really going to go to the bachelor party instead of talking to me tonight? It's like, yeah, he's a groomsman, Shelby. I don't know why you're surprised he would go to a bachelor party. Well, that's also coming as Quentin Terrence Howard has been building merch up saying like, hey, wait a minute, like you can stand up for yourself. You don't always have to do whatever Shelby wants. Right. So merch has been slowly standing up to her, which she takes as like, this is awful. We need to have a frank discussion tonight. And he's like, no. To be fair, a frank discussion would be more respectful than what merch does, which is at the bachelor party, he falls in love with Candy, who is one of the strippers they bring in. And it's funny because at first it's very much just like he's drunk she's dancing on him and he's in love but the best is outside he's like talking to her and she at first is like mostly humoring him like all right yeah like, yeah whatever and then eventually until he quotes poetry at her yeah, he quotes audrey lord and she's just like what cut to at the wedding merch is talking to shelby shelby's basically like where have you been and then candy shows up because merch has invited her to the wedding it's insane. Why is she there? It is a wild move. And so he basically dumps Shelby on the steps of the church and walks in with this woman he met the night before while he was hammered. And Shelby sticks around. That's the weirdest part. Yeah. I, here's the thing. I love Shelby's reception energy. Yeah. Where she has just been dumped on the steps of the church. She hangs out for the wedding and reception. And is just, like, knocking back champagne and kind of sarcastically reacting to everything that goes on. But she fights to catch that bouquet when it gets thrown. Great moment. So, I guess this brings us to point five. I just want to mention, incredibly, based on the little bit of looking I did at the sequel, Merchant Candy stay together. 
Well, I mean, they got to get Regina Hall back. Well, yeah, that's the thing. So, point five, Shelby and Quentin? Question mark? Say you like it. Stop it! Look, at least they have sex. Yeah, so after Shelby fights to catch the bouquet, Quentin catches the garter. Which is a weird tradition that I don't know about. It's a thing. I have never seen anyone do it. It's a thing. I've never seen it at a wedding, but I know it happens. And I guess, so because Quentin caught the garter, he's supposed to put it on Shelby for catching the bouquet. And he really hams it up in an uncomfortable way. he goes for it. And he's like about to put it on her foot with his mouth. Yeah, he's, like, got her foot on his face, and he's, like, rubbing it around, like, shoving it up with his nose and his tongue. Oh, it's rough. And then eventually she runs away. away. And everyone's like, you have to go after her. You gotta finish the job. And then there's um, a solid five minutes of the electric slide. Yeah, there is. Like, just a lot of electric slide. But that is the kind of... You gotta give your movie a nice DreamWorks ending. Yeah. And so that's kind of the credits start rolling over the electric slide, but then we cut to a bed, and... Shelby and Quentin wake up, and they are equally disgusted at the concept that they slept together. Okay, like I said, I only looked into the sequel, The Best Man Holiday, which comes out much later. It's in 2013. I only looked into it a little bit, but I did see enough to see that Shelby is a real housewife, Like, which is an idea that I love. That's amazing. Oh, maybe we should watch it. They were supposed to do a third one called The Best Man Wedding, but... You know, it was announced in 2013 and still has not come out. So who knows? But yeah, so that's The Best Man. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's a fun it was movie. It's good. I, I think the people are allowed to be much more human in more complicated ways than I would have expected from a movie like this. Me too. Part of the way as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is what movies like Deliver Us from Eva were chasing. Yes. Yeah. Like this is the movie that those movies were trying to be. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. With more complicated characters. But like characters. what you need is... Human relationships, not like a bunch of business about who controls the Dandridge Fund. (laughs) The Dandridge Fund. Oh my god. So, Will, after watching all of this, do you find the romances of the best man believable? Mostly, yes. In some cases, unfortunately. Yes. But yes. unbelievable part is when Harper proposes to Robin. Yes. Which is bananas. Robin should not say yes there. Everything else to me is fairly plausible. I think Merch inviting Candy to the wedding is pretty wild. I think her showing up is even wilder. Yeah. So definitely not a 10. Yeah. This is no Congo. <laughs> I forgot we gave Congo a 10. <laughs> uh, yeah. So where would you rate it on a 10-point scale? I'm thinking like a 7. Yeah. That sounds right to me. I'll go with this. Because I think the Lance and Mia stuff is all believable, as much as in some cases that's a bummer. Yeah, I think that the Harper and Jordan stuff is believable. I love how messy the Harper and Jordan yeah, stuff is. Because life is messy. Yeah. Do you find any of the romantic leads dateable? Um, huh. Maybe merch. Maybe merch. And maybe Mia. Yeah. She seems perfectly nice. And Robin, even though Robin loses some points for her lack of judgment at the end. Right. But yeah, I think merch is the most dateable. Yeah. Do you think that any of the couples will stay together, regardless of what we know from the sequel? I think Lance and Mia will. Mm. Interesting. I think that Lance is going to almost immediately start cheating again, and now that they're married, it's going to make it much tougher on Mia, and I think Mia might eventually leave. I don't know. I think that's possible. I think the movie certainly believes they're going to stay together. Yes. 
I think I'm just a little more pessimistic than Malcolm D. Lee. Sure. I would find it implausible that Quentin and Shelby would stay together, but they might be just selfish enough for each other. I would find it implausible that Merch and Candy stay together. Yes, very much so. And Harper and Robin are a solid baby for me. Yeah. Now, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? Hmm. It's a tough question. I do love that Candy recognizes a quote from Audrey Lord and is a very good dancer, but I think I might have to go with Merch. You're not going to go with Uncle Skeeter? There's not a lot of side characters in this movie. <laughs> it's basically just Uncle Skeeter. Yeah, so I usually try to avoid picking a main character, but I think Merch is the move for this one for me. Yeah, it's got to be Merch. So many of the movies we cover have been adapted into Broadway musicals. Do you think this movie should be made into a Broadway musical? No. No. It is kind of a miracle that this movie works, and I'm afraid that if you tinkered with any part of it, it would just fall apart and you would hate everybody. It is a house of cards. It is beautiful, it is intricate, and it is fragile. Yes. I think you were right on that. All right, I think that is about it for the best man. All right, next week we'll be talking about a pretty good man as we look at 1971's Shaft. Is he that good? We will discuss. Uh, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love to Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovetolovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps us the most. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from the best man? Hmm. We've done 168 episodes, and I've still yet to think about this question in advance. <laughs> I mean, one, this is negative. Don't write a book dramatizing your own life without warning people in advance or spilling secrets have you watched let them all talk yet not yet sorry okay because that is basically also the premise of that movie and like one of the central tensions of the movie is they're all on this cruise ship together and candace bergen resents meryl streep for having novelized her life okay yeah i really need to check that out it's great this movie was longer than i was anticipating to be honest <laughs> uh But in terms of actual dating advice, buy a bunch of flowers and immediately kill them and throw them in a tub. It's so sensual. It was so sensual. Mine is Stevie Wonder can help seal the deal. Mm, That's good. Yeah. All right. There you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye now. Bye.